Thank you very much. So where I'd like to begin is where we are with the war. Um, I should probably begin with the microphone on. Is the, is, is, the, is the microphone on, or is it just that's my deep, booming voice? Is that better? Excellent. So you missed the first joke. That was actually the first joke. So where I'd like to begin is where we are with this war. I, I think uh, the war has gone on for long enough that we can all of us see its obviously global character. There are at least three ways, probably more, that the Russo-Ukrainian war is global. The first is that it's a full-fronted assault, or the Russian invasion is a full-fronted assault on what passes for the international legal order. If there is a principle of international legal order, it is that one does not invade another country unprovoked. The second way that it's obviously of, of global significance has to do with China. It's, um, it's my conviction, and I think this has been confirmed in the meantime, that what happens in Ukraine is observed very carefully by countries around the world, um, allies of Ukraine, enemies of Ukraine, countries in the middle, and judgments about whether offensive war and offensive operations are possible are being passed on the basis of what happens in Ukraine. That concerns very directly China and, and the Pacific. The third way is perhaps not so obvious, but it's worth thinking about. If we take seriously climate change, as we all ought to, we should be thinking about what the politics of the end of the world will look like. What does it look like if we fail to solve climate change? What would it mean if, rather than the people who are trying to solve climate change, the, the hydrocarbon oligarchs are in charge? What would that look like? We have an answer. It looks like the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There are several important hydrocarbon oligarchs in the world. Mr. Putin is the most important of them. And I think his racialized, demographically obsessed, futureless uh, invasion of Ukraine is probably a pretty good signal to us of what the rest of the 21st century might look like um, if we don't get a handle on climate change. So I say this to establish just the general idea, which I, I, I take it that many of you will share, that this is a war of global significance. But what I'd like to do in this lecture is actually make a rather historical argument. I'd like, I'd like to take the opportunity of being invited to give the last lecture and to speak to historian colleagues and others to, to make the case that it's not surprising or accidental that Ukraine sits at the center of our world historical concerns. My general sense as a historian is that Ukraine, a bit like a black hole, is, is so central and sometimes so dark that we fail to see it. So what I'd like to do in this lecture is, is, is make the case that um, our entire global history, to make a very bold claim, makes more sense, or at least a different kind of sense, if we talk about it beginning from Ukraine. By global history, by the way, I don't just mean the 21st century. I don't mean the world being flat. I don't mean some kind of homogenizing notion that everyone is the same. I don't mean global history in the sense that you can stop listening to me right now and text your friend in Korea about how boring it is. I mean rather global history in all four dimensions. Not just the world, but the past of the world 
and all of the pasts of the world, recorded than otherwise. So let me start there. This language that I'm speaking to you in, this language that I'm speaking to you in, this, this English language, is an Indo-European language. Now usually during a lecture you don't stop and pause and think about what, lecture, what language is being spoken. But to get to how fundamental the territory of Ukraine is for the world, um, for all of the world that speaks Indo-European languages, which is a great deal of the world, one Indo-European language, English, is the second language of much of the world and the first language also of much of the world. To get to the bottom of how significant Ukraine is for the world, we actually have to start with spoken language. So I'm going to do a little fun exercise here, um, apropos of Halloween. In, in, uh, in, in Proto-Indo-European, which is the, the language we know ever more about, which is the basis for Romance languages, Slavic languages, Baltic languages, all kinds of other languages. The word for guest and host and ghost was the same. And when you hear those words together, that's probably not surprising. They actually sound rather similar. In our society, they have quite opposing meanings. Who is the guest and who is the host is quite clear in the United States. We do not have a hospitality culture, right? It's clear who's the guest and what the duty of the guest is which is to leave as soon as possible. Um, and, uh, and it's also clear that in our culture in the 21st century, a guest, a, a ghost is a visitor, but an unwelcome visitor. If you, think, if you think your way back to a world in which guest, ghost, and, and host are the same word, then you can imagine a different attitude towards death in which the people who pass are visitors, but welcome visitors. And you can also imagine a hospitality culture which is so thorough and intense and so regularly reciprocal that he who is a guest will immediately be a host and vice versa, hence the lack of a need to distinguish between the two words. So I give this example not just because it's, it's fun, um, but also because it reveals something important about the territory that we're talking about. It appears now and this is an example of how, in the more ancient periods, I think knowledge is moving faster than in the more modern periods. It appears now on the basis of an accumulation of the archaeological, the philological, and now the ancient DNA evidence. Right? Speaking of skeletons, since 2011, our colleagues in archaeology with the appropriate tool set have been able to scrape ancient skeletons for DNA evidence, which they're now doing on a truly massive basis. On the basis of three different kinds of evidence, it now appears that Proto-Indo-European was spoken precisely in what is now Ukraine, in the Bronze Age. In, in southern Ukraine, in what's, now, in what's now a tip of southwestern Russia. So, um, you know, following on work by David Anthony, David Reich, and, and, and many others, it's possible to make the claim that um, we have now an alternative story of the beginning of, if you like, or whether you like it or not, in fact, Western civilization. Because you know, Mesopotamia and Egypt have the advantage of stone and the advantage of writing. The, the people in Bronze Age Ukraine who were pastoralists, their civilization was built upon the principle of horse capture, horse breeding, and horse-led pastoralism, which apparently allowed them to immigrate um, 
one would like to think peacefully, but the DNA record suggests otherwise, um, to immigrate westward in other directions with their superior form of farming, bringing with them language and other forms of culture. This seems to have happened in the Bronze Age, spreading the language which I'm speaking, most of the languages that, many of the languages that we in this, in this room will know. But what I mean is that that would be a rival story, contemporary with ancient Egypt and ancient Mesopotamia, just without the rocks, right? Without the rocks, without the big cities. But nevertheless, when one asks the question, which is perhaps most relevant for what Europe very broadly conceived, also Eurasia, um, what those, where those cultures actually came from, it seems that pastoralists from what is now Ukraine may be number one um, in your origin story. But that is, so to speak, just the beginning, right? So if, when, when people teach or talk in, in Western civilization, the chosen starting point was Greece. So you know, Mesopotamia and Egypt are somewhere flanking, but you know, in, in this culture at least, people tend to aim for ancient Greece. And of course, I can make the easy move and point out that the Greek language is an Indo-European isolate, and therefore everything which is in Greek culture, if the first argument is right, comes from the steppe of Ukraine. But we can see deeper than that. If we look at the Iliad, right, the, 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 the great Homeric poem of the, the Trojan War, um, the Iliad, although we don't notice it, because you have to be really, really good in geography to actually follow what's going on in the Iliad, many of the interesting and important scenes in the Iliad, which we think of as Greek, actually have to do with the northern Black Sea coast. So at the very beginning, when Agamemnon has to sacrifice his daughter, Iphigenia, in one version of the story, she is actually sacrificed. Another version of the story, the one that we prefer for the purposes of this lecture, she's not sacrificed, and she's brought to the, to the, to the land of the Torians, which is, of course, Crimea, which means that for the authors or the author of the Iliad, Crimea was a familiar place. At the end of, of the story of the Trojan War, we have the death of Achilles. Where, does Achilles. where is Achilles buried? Well, according to one chronicle or one version of the story, he is buried on an island called Snake Island. So if you've been paying attention to the history of the war in Ukraine, the first invasion in 2014 was the invasion of Crimea. In other words, where Iphigenia was exiled. The second invasion in 2022 involved a very poignant episode at precisely at Snake Island, where Ukrainian soldiers in the first days of the war um, refused to surrender to a Russian warship. That island was then taken by the Russians and then taken back and is now held by the Ukrainians. So this, the most ancient literary Greek geography that we have actually speaks of territories that are, that are essential to the war which is taking place. But we can go one step deeper than that with Greece. So of course, the Greece that people focus on, whether they're interested in the history of mathematics or philosophy or the origins of history, is fourth century Greece, is Athens. And you know, the origin myth of fourth century Greece, uh, fourth century Athens, the origin myth of Athens has to do with the olive tree. I'm sure you all know it. Poseidon comes, he strikes a trident against the rocks. Salt water comes up, the Greeks say, we actually already have a lot of salt water already. Um, and then Athena comes and she, and she touches the soil and an olive tree comes forth. So olives are quite correctly associated with Athens. But if you think about it, like much as one likes olives, you don't actually survive on olives alone, right? That's not, the ancient Greece can't just have been like 
togas with olive stains. There must have been something else that they were eating. And the something else that they were eating was wheat. And that was wheat, that bread, obviously, not raw wheat. And the wheat was imported from the southern Black Sea coast. Um, fourth century Greece was not, was not simply Athens and the togas and the drawings and the words. Fourth century Greece was a larger political economic synthesis where the food was imported from, if that's the right word, from something called the Kingdom of the Bosporus. The Kingdom of the Bosporus was a fascinating state which faced onto the Greek world in Greek um, and, and faced onto the Scythian world in Scythian where the rulers regarded themselves both as kings of the Scythians and from the Greek perspective as archons, as, as, Greek, as Greek rulers, and who were bilingual and who dressed in both directions, and interestingly enough, who were buried in both ways simultaneously. For the longest time, there was a controversy about who was ethnically Greek and who was ethnically Scythian, until of course people eventually came to the sensible conclusion that the mixture of burial rites reflects a hybrid way of being, which is of course perfectly logical and perfectly sensible. The Scythian elites sent their, sent their sons to Athens to be educated and brought them back, right? And so that is how ancient Athens functioned. Now, the kingdom of the Bosporus was located, as I think I've said, on both sides of the Kerch Straits. In other words, precisely the bridge which the Russians built after invading Ukraine in 2014, precisely the bridge which will have to be in the water if Ukraine is going to win the war. So once again, you see that the, the essential things about ancient, or now we're moving into classical history, are quite resonant for the war which is before our eyes, and indeed make the war which is before our eyes make sense, or make a lot more sense than it would otherwise. Um, so, the, uh, this, um, so, so, so this tradition comes to us, I would say, um, and, and we can talk about this later, but I would venture to say that this Greek, this version of Greece, right, the one with the togas and the olive stains, um, and Pythagoras and, and um, you know, Herodotus and Thucydides and Pericles, it comes to us by a strange route, which we refer to as the Renaissance. Now, like a lot of metaphors, if you stop on the metaphor of a renaissance and just hold it in your hands for a little bit and contemplate it, it starts to become very strange very quickly. Um, there's a good Russian word for this, which is ostranenya. If you, if you look at like, the idea of being born again for more than about a second, you start to realize this is a very strange way of contemplating the world. right? Um, a metaphorical, so if there's a metaphor of being born again, what is an actual second human birth like? Is the more concrete, I'm not going to get too concrete with you about this, right? I'm just trying to like undermine the naturalness around the metaphor of a renaissance to, as the beginning of a suggestion that something is deeply wrong with it. Because of course, there is. The, the, way, that we're, the way that we're led into this, um, the way that we're led into ancient Greece involves this renaissance. Okay, so how to, how to, um, how to approach this? Uh, I, was, I spent much of September in Ukraine. Um, I left in late August for Ukraine. I got back in mid-September. Um, and I, I, I left from Vienna. And before I left, I went to the Kunsthistorisches Museum, which is one of my, my favorite places in, in the world with my daughter. And in the Kunsthistorisches Museum, I noticed a painting, which I hadn't actually noticed before, um, by the Dutch painter. Um, he was Rubens's, one of Rubens's main teachers, I think. Um, Otto Vending. 
And the painting, I don't, I'm not sure if it's actually titled, for quite a long time, it was a mystery as to what this painting actually portrayed. It's from about 1597. Uh, it, 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 or what it means. What it portrays is quite clear. It's, um, it's beautiful, beautiful women in a forest who have just disrobed or in the process of disrobing. And there are some men kind of on the flanks. And then if you look very carefully in the foreground, there are some weapons. After a while, people figured out correctly, this guess has to be correct, that what um, Van Dien was portraying was a section of, um, of, of Herodotus in which he's describing the union of the Scythians and the Amazons. So in case you don't know, in the story of, of so the Amazons reject men, I'm sure you know that. You may not know that they reject men 364 days of the year. Um, so if you, if, if you thought about the Amazons, you might have asked yourself, so okay, one generation of Amazons, but how are there more than one generation of Amazons? And the answer is that 365th day of the year, which is the day that was portrayed in that painting. So the, the story goes that the Amazons would meet men once a year, hello, goodbye, you know, and then nine months later, there'd be more Amazons. Um, that, was, that was the notion. And so this is what, this is what is being portrayed in this painting. Um, now, what Herodotus was describing, although of course that actual ritual in such a beautified way probably didn't take place, what Herodotus was describing actually does have a historical basis. It does seem that, it does seem that there were Amazons. It's not that the Amazons met the Scythians. It's more likely that the Amazons were the Scythians. That is to say, it appears that the Scythians did in fact have female, female warriors, if at least one can judge from the always you know, disputable basis of, of, of burials. right? Female Scythians were buried very regularly with, their, with armor and weapons, which one assumes were their armor and weapons. So it appears that the Amazons were the Scythians, um, which is something that I was thinking about. So the painting came back to me when, I was, when I'd arrived in southern Ukraine um, in the territory which was Scythian territory, where the burial grounds where the Amazon women were actually found, and where, of course, many Ukrainian women in the last few months and years have been killed fighting um, as active duty soldiers in the Ukrainian army, um, leaving evidence that future archaeologists will have to then try to understand. As you may or may not know, about a fifth of the Ukrainian army is female, right? And unlike in other militaries in general around the world, these are women taking part in trench assaults um, and, uh, and general and active duty infantry. So once again, there's, a, there's an echo of the recorded of ancient past in the things that one can describe today. I guess I should say that the territory that I was in, once I went from Odessa to Mykolaiv to Kherson Oblast, was territory which had just been liberated by the Ukrainian army, right? Territory which I could only visit physically because of what that Ukrainian army had in fact just done. So I, I take it you see though the larger point about the Renaissance. When one stands on the territory where the Scythians and perhaps the Amazons actually lived and died, the connection to ancient Greece is palpable. It's literally in your hands or before your eyes. The city of Nikolaev is very close to the ancient city of Olbia, um, whose kings uh, dressed, as, dressed as Scythians when they went out to battle and then changed into Greek dress when they went home, um, who dressed as Scythians with the men or dressed, and dressed as Greeks with the women where the, the funeral memorials would have a portrayal of beautiful Greek, beautiful Greek youth on one side and a Scythian warrior on the other side, which again for a long time was interpreted as two different people until, people until the realization dawned that in fact a better or more elegant interpretation is that this is the same person who lived a 
a life which had at least two parts. So, um, you know, basically looking down on, on Olbia, this is, what, this is what I was thinking. And when you're in that particular position or predicament, the idea of a renaissance is completely unnecessary or at least or, or quite confusing, right? So when I tell the story about the painting, what's the geography there? The geography is I'm standing in Vienna, a comfortably Western civilized city, right? The painting itself was executed in the Netherlands in the late 16th century, right? Comfortably West European locale. It's portraying something which is a Greek myth, and that it's not even entirely a myth, but the Greek myth completely loses its geography, right? In the Renaissance, there's no, there doesn't have to be a geography to Greece. You don't have to think about where those Scythians and where those Amazons actually were. They're just a kind of abstract inspiration for your humanism or for something. You're not thinking about where the history actually took place. So the Renaissance abstracts from space in a very significant way, which forces the lands of Ukraine entirely out of the story, out of the ancient story, out of the classical story, out of the early medieval story. And of course, it also abstracts from time, because the notion of the Renaissance, again, this is very primitive, right? But the notion of the Renaissance is that Rome fell in the fourth century. I can't do that without the air quotes. I promise I've given myself a quota of two air quotes, which is now exhausting. Um, Rome fell in the fourth century, um, and then, it's, and then was in some way was reborn um, by, the, by, by the Merovingians, by Charlemagne, by, by Otto in Germany. Um, that's, you know, if you look at West European history, that can seem like it makes a kind of sense, but Rome didn't fall, or it didn't fall until 1453. It fell, it fell much, much later. In, in the fourth century, Rome changed capitals, as one does. Many respectable countries have, have, have done so, right? Um, this one, you know, Kazakhstan, Brazil, and long list. It changed capitals to Constantinople, which was a purpose-built capital for a newly Christian regime, which then lasts for another millennium. And not just from the point of view of the lands I'm talking about, but from the point of view of the Europe of the time, that was Rome. Um, not just for Kiev, which I'm about to talk about, but for, for Otto and for Charlemagne and for the Vikings and for everyone else, that was Rome. And when they were borrowing or copying from something, and Christian Rothensberger does very well on this subject in his book, they're not copying from some imagined Rome, they're copying from the actual Rome that exists, which is what we call Byzantium. We copy a, a, a misleading German historiographical tradition and call it Byzantium. If we called it Rome, or at least Eastern Rome, we'd have a very different set of associations. So our way of seeing things, um, this, this notion of a renaissance, crowds out um, geographical and, and temporal continuity, which would help us to see just how central the lands of Ukraine actually, actually are. Okay. So um, when we think about it this way, you know, there, there, aren't any, there aren't any dark ages, right? So the, uh, the, the Greece, Rome, Byzantium, and then the emergence of Kiev as the capital of a new Christian state, which is called Rus, or sometimes Kievan Rus, in 988, is, is all a not very surprising continuity. Um, the, the question then comes as to how the Greek part which we've now established is at the north coast of the Black Sea, how it gets as far north as Kiev. Like how do you get to Kiev? So, so Kiev has an, ancient, um, has, a, has an ancient cathedral, a Hagia Sophia, 
Hassan Sufiya, which is modeled on Constantinople, as are many things in central Kiev. How did that happen, right? How did that Greek culture, that enduring Greek culture, get as far north as Kiev? What's, what's the answer to that question? And just a little parenthesis here. For me, at least in, until the last 150 years or so, the real geography in Ukraine is north-south. East-west is almost always a red herring. The real geography in the creation of Ukraine is, is north-south. It involves the Black Sea and the Dnipro River and, and, and the Baltic Sea in a way that I'm going to try to show. East-west is almost always um, a misleading Russian or, or, or Western view of what's, of what's happening. Okay, so, um, all right, so what, what was I doing um, besides like standing over like burial pits and contemplating things that happened 2,000 years ago. I was, I was in southern Ukraine mainly because I wanted to visit some farms. And the reason why I wanted to visit some farms is that I was concerned with what I take to be a largely overlooked element of this war, which is that as in the time when the pastoralists spread into European, as in the time when the kingdom of the Bosporus fed ancient Greece, it's Ukrainian food which is critical for the politics and in some profound sense the safety of much of the rest of the world. Um, the, the World Food Organization takes more than half of its food, usually, from Ukraine. Ukraine exports commercially to much of Asia and much of, and much of Africa. Many, many, many millions of people depend upon the cheap food which is grown in southern Ukraine, which is very close to the ports on the, on the Black Sea and on the, on, the, on the Azov Sea. So I was there to think about that. I was there to think about how difficult agriculture had become in this particular setting, where a dam had been burst where um, a huge portion of the country was, was, had been mined, um, where things were literally on fire. I mean, it's the hottest summer in the world. In addition to that, in addition to being the hottest summer, there, there's the traces of flames left by rockets. The people who are there to demine the fields have a hard time doing their job because of the fires which are set by the climate, right? So you have this sort of cascade of disasters. The farms that I was visiting were, were distinguished by the fact that the farmers had themselves I'm not sure how many people of an agricultural background are in here who are going to appreciate this, um, but who had themselves rigged up tractors, not their best tractors, rigged up tractors to be demining equipment, and had then run those tractors over their fields in late 2022 in order to clear the fields so they could get the winter crops in, so they could have a first harvest of 2023. Those are the farms that, that I was that I was visiting. When at the first of the two farms, um, one, of the women, one of the women who greeted me um, and, my, and my friends was, was called Helena, which I won't, you know, I'm not going to push this point any, too, any further, but the name Helena is, of course, Helen, and that's the face that launched a thousand ships. Okay, you've gotten it by now. I want it to still be a live horse from those Ukrainian pastoralists. I don't want it to be a dead horse. Okay. So, 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 so Helena, um, so, um, you know, so, so Helena. When, when as, as, as she was feeding us, she did get me thinking that she was feeding borscht and watermelon, right? Because it's Herson Oblast, where which grows watermelon. So borscht and watermelon. And it was in this setting, actually, it was right then that I first started thinking about the hospitality culture and the ghost guest host and how they can be, they can be at a greater or a closer distance, actually, in the modern world. Like in the Ukrainian language, if you say the, the word for guest is heast, Right, um, but it's it's yahol, you know, yahol stom or or hoste. So you hear the heist and the host already in the Ukrainian language, which kind of gets you thinking about guest and guest and host. Um, but it was all three because while we were eating, people were talking about their experience of occupation, 
This was a farm whose territory had been deoccupied, which means that everyone who was in talking, including my reporting friends, including me for that matter, had, had lost someone who they cared about. And so there's also the presence, right, of that other visitor. And so that's, that's what got me thinking. That's what got me started on the whole guest, guest, ghost, host thing, that sometimes these concepts are crowded in much closer than they might be, than they might be otherwise. Um, the way that, the, the way that she, and she, in telling her story of occupation, she referred to, so we're speaking Ukrainian, she referred to um, the Russian occupiers using the word rashist, um, rashisti, which is an incredibly complicated play on a whole bunch of Indo-European languages, which I'm going to leave for question and answer because I have other things that I want to say. Um, but, so, you know, consider that your provocation, unless you're Ukrainian, in which case you already know. Um, the, the, at the second farm, um, where also, you know, the guys had also rigged up their own demining equipment, um, they had theirs on remote control, so it was a tractor with a big roller in front of it and something behind it. And, and then they had, but it was actually a drone because it was on remote control, so you could run this tractor on remote control to clear the mines. Which is kind of an amusing thought, I guess, but of course, like, lives depended on it, not just the livelihoods of the farmers, but the lives of the people who were fed by, by, by the grain, which they actually did manage to harvest. It was a bad harvest, but it was, it was a harvest. But at the second farm, the word that the men used to refer to the Russian occupiers was orcs, orki. Um, and when you first hear that, you're probably thinking, okay, well, that's definitely just a flat 21st century, like homogenized, you know, global thing. Like everybody watched Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, and that's why they talk about, that's why they talk about works. And of course, there's something to that. But I wanna, I wanna use that word to make, to make a, a connection to the next thing, the next group of people who are very important to what Kiev and Rus actually is, and to the people who answer the question, how did that Greek culture get so far north? Those people are, of course, the Vikings. So where does the word orc come from? Why do we have the word orc in our culture at all? The word orc comes from, I forget which line now, maybe 62. It comes from, um, it comes from Beowulf. It comes from Beowulf. Um, the, the word orknias, the plural, fell beasts of the underworld or something like that, is in Beowulf. Right. When I say it comes from Beowulf, I don't mean it was found in Beowulf. I mean that J.R.R. Tolkien translated Beowulf in 1926. And from Beowulf drew many things like Middle Earth, a Lord of the Rings, an anonymous thief who steals a goblet from a jealous dragon, a magic sword. Many, many, many things that are in the Lord of the Rings come from, come from Beowulf originally. But, um, and so we have the word orc because of Beowulf, because of the oldest literary text in, in English language or in Anglo-Saxon. But Beowulf is, of course, describing the life of Vikings in the 5th or 6th or 7th centuries. It's a text about a Viking lodge which has been threatened by a creature called Grendel, which is rescued by the heroic figure Beowulf. Right? And along the way, ethnographically, it describes how the, the, the charismatic politics of Vikings before the Christian age which is the Great Hall, the Chieftain, the Raid, the distribution of booty, which are the rings in the Lord of the Rings, by the way, um, as the word ring is used. Um, that, and that, of course, is the culture of the people who found Kiev and Rus. So the Vikings, I mean, to put, it big, to put it in a big, broad, and brutal way, are just a much, much, much bigger deal in European history than one is accustomed to think. 
like a lot of other groups who literate people got to describe, they are generally presented as these barbaric, barbarians who are interested in murder and so on. Um, but as historians of political economy know, the murder and so on is generally just a way to set up the trade terms that you're looking for. Um, the, the, the Vikings were, in fact, behind a huge amount of the political development of medieval Europe, and therefore a huge amount of the political history of Europe itself. Um, the Vikings are the Vikings are responsible for um, they're responsible for you know Denmark, Norway, Sweden, indirect Normandy, Sicily, indirectly England by way of Normandy. You know when William the Conqueror conquers England in 1066, he's actually beating out the Norwegian um, Viking competitor Harald Hardrade, who who was who was an incredibly interesting person. Um, who served, who served for long periods at the courts of Kiev and in the courts of Byzantium before making his way back to Norway and finally being killed in England trying to conquer it. He's the one who wore out the English armies so that William the Conqueror could then waltz in a few weeks, a few weeks later. So the Vikings are, again, no dark ages, right? The Vikings are a big part of the political construction of medieval Europe. They found a very large number of the states. And one of the states that they found is precisely Rus. So the Scandinavians, the Vikings, and particularly this group from Sweden, which we remember, which we know as the Rus, make their way south into Eurasia, selling fur, which they get from Finno-Ugric people in Balts, and selling slaves. Um, by way of, they try lots of different routes. They try to, they try to control the Volga River, which they, they fail to do so. It's controlled by the, the Muslim Bulgars. Where they end up succeeding in control, they also try to control the Danube, which is another interesting story. They fail there. Um, where they succeed is in the Dnipro, the river which runs through the middle of Ukraine. So Kiev, which had been a trading point of a fascinating people deserving of a whole series of lectures, which I'm not going to give, the Hazars. Um, Kiev, which had been a fortress of the Hazars, where they collected tribute from the Slavic people around them, then becomes a Viking trading post in the ninth century. Kiev becomes that point midway between the Baltic Sea and the Black Sea, which allows for this trading route from the Baltic to the Black Sea. Um, and so when the Vikings then convert to Christianity in 988, that's the answer to the question of how Greek culture comes that far north. It's because Scandinavian culture comes that far south. The point that I want to make about this, though, before I close, is that that story, the one that I've told, is actually completely typical and normal. It's hypertypical. The things that are in Ukraine, which look as though they're exotic and marginal, are actually hypertypical. It's typical for Vikings to have founded European states. They founded a bunch of them. It's also typical for Byzantium to be a major cultural influence on young European medieval states. That was generally true. So if you have a state, Kievan Rus, which was both founded by Vikings and heavily influenced by Byzantine culture, that's not exotic, that's hypertypical. It may be the most typical, if you like, European state. Right? It may be the most typical. And yet somehow it's the one that we managed to overlook entirely. So what I'm trying to suggest here as I move to my conclusion, I should have said this at the beginning. Um, I'm going to say something about the modern, but I, I wanted to stay with the ancient because, frankly, it's a lot more interesting. Um, and there's, and, and the, the pace at which people are learning about the ancient is actually much faster than the pace at which modern debates are changing. At least I believe that's the case. Um, I, I wanted to spend more time on the ancient because I want to, I want to try to establish that 
um, with the help of ancient or prehistoric reference points, like the Pastoralists, or like the Iliad, or like the Kingdom of the Bosporus, um, with the help of reference points like that, one then begins to see the land of Ukraine in a completely different way, right? One begins to see how it's axial, or how it has a point without which other later things don't make very much sense. Rather than trying to take Ukraine as it exists today and then crowd it into like a narrative of Western history which is problematic and false anyway, what I would prefer to do is start with what actually happened, as strange as it might seem, and then ask, how then do we have to reshape that flawed narrative of Western history so that it makes sense, right, with, with this at its center, which I think is very much at its center. So as, we, as, as, as I move then towards the close, um, let me move towards the modern. This, this move that I've made about how Ukraine is not exotic but hypertypical continues through every stage. So when we get to the Renaissance, we are also getting to the age of discovery. Those two things happen simultaneously, but in general, they're happening on a split screen. So you have you know, the recovery of science taking place at some, let's say, university in Italy with a young guy called Copernicus or whatever. And then way over here, you have silver being taken in Latin America, right? Ukraine is unusual in that the age of discovery and the Renaissance happens simultaneously in the same place, right? That, um, the Polish Renaissance is also the Polish age of discovery of Ukraine. The Poles, when they colonized Ukraine in the 16th century, bring with them their Ptolemy and their Herodotus, and they check to see whether there are, in fact, Hyperborean mountains. There aren't. Or griffins guarding gold, also no. Um, relics of the Scythians, yes, turns out that's there, right? But the age of the discovery and the age of colonization, not only simultaneous in Ukraine, they take place in the same location. This is followed after the Russians defeat the Poles by a kind of repeat, um, a repeat, very intense colonization of southern Ukraine precisely by Catherine the Great, which is on the basis of a kind of understanding of this, of this ancient past. Um, southern Ukraine, after the Kievan state fell, was, was held for hundreds of years by something called the Crimean Khanate. Um, which was which converted to Muslim to Islam at some point, and which was the main, the one of the main neighbors of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, and then later the Russian Empire, also enslaved a very large number of Slavs, um, which is one of the many reasons why the English word Slav and the English word slave sound similar because they are in fact the same word. Um, so the um, so when Catherine the Great defeats the Crimean Tatars and incorporates what's now southern Ukraine and Crimea into the Russian Empire. She, she does this with a kind of, um, what we might find to be a bizarre, enlightened fervor. She takes all the local place names and replaces them, not with actual Greek place names, but with Greek place names that she made up. Um, and, and she takes, um, and she, that's why Herson Oblast is called Herson Oblast. Herson Oblast, Herson sounds Greek, right? But that's, Hers Catherine just named it that. Also, Mariupol, right? It sounds Greek, but that's actually just Catherine, like, oh, right? She did the same thing with fruit trees. Like, she took the fruit trees that she thought probably grew in Greece, and she said, oh, I'll have an, I'll have an apricot tree here, right? But, you know, it, it sounds funny, but it's, it's also this kind of organizing tabula rasa enlightenment vision where we're going to have a, a, this super clean version of what the past is, and the super clean version is there was ancient Greece, and then there was us and everything else in between, we're gonna get out of the way. 
right? Which again is hypertypical. We do that too. Just with, this is just a much more extreme version of it, which was actually which was actually implemented. Um, and it, that indirectly, by the way, goes to the, goes to this question of like Crimea always being Russian. You know, the, the reason why people say something is always something is because it's only very recently something, right? Like I've always loved you. <laughs> in general, to tip off, people use always, and Crimea is an excellent example of that. Right? Crimea has only been it's only been Russian since like last Wednesday. It has a very very long and interesting history, but the Russian point version of that history is um, is, is in fact extraordinarily extraordinarily recent. So anyway, with the age of discovery, you can do the same thing. You can say that it's hypertypical. Um, when you see the resistance to that moment of, 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 of colonization by, by, by Ukrainian Cossacks, that's also a very early anti-colonial or anti- or, or, or proto-national movement. And of course, the modern period is also just full of hypertypical things. The, the Ukrainian national movement in the 19th century was hypertypical. It had, it's, it's, like, it's like they time-traveled forward and read Miroslav Proch, and then like did the three stages that Proch said you should, you, sorry, that's an obscure reference, which only Professor King is acknowledging. Um, Miroslav Proch was a, a Czech, right, sociologist who had this famous three-stage argument for what national movement would be like, um, which others then copied. Uh, but, but the Ukrainian movement was typical, and the Ukrainian failure to establish a national state in 1918 was also typical. So in, when, the, when the empires of Eastern Europe collapsed in 1918 or thereabouts, um, there were many attempts to found new, new nation states, almost all of which fail by 1938 or 1940. Ukraine was hypertypical in that it's failed, it failed immediately in, 19, in 1918. Not exotic, just, more, just so typical that one doesn't even see that it's there. And the, the, the final place that one can make this gesture is of course, has to do, of course, with totalitarianism or with, with Stalin's Soviet Union and Hitler's Germany. In both cases, um, although they, they seem they are different states and they have different ideologies, territorially, they have the same obsession. In both cases, they are thinking about the, th about the theme, which I hope you've noticed underlay this talk, which is how Ukrainian agriculture changes political order. In the case of Stalin, the notion was controlling, collectivizing and controlling Ukrainian agriculture will allow us to transform the world by building this state that he called socialist. Hence collectivization, hence famine, hence four million deaths in Soviet Ukraine, about seven million in the Soviet Union. From Hitler's point of view, controlling Ukrainian agriculture was also a world transformative project. Controlling Ukrainian agriculture was the major motive of the war that we call the Second World War, which we in the West tend to provincially look at from the point of view of you know, Normandy or something. Um, but the essence of the Second World War was, of course, the German-Soviet war for Ukraine, and in particular for Ukrainian agriculture. Hitler's notion was that the control of Ukrainian agriculture would allow Germany to become a superpower on the model of Great Britain and the United States. That was, that was the view, right? And so once again, if you look at that, if you look at either of those ideologies or both of them or the war between those two states from the point of Ukraine, you see what is actually typical. You see what is actually typical. But because it's so typical, it's almost unbearably typical. And so that's, that's where I close. Um, I, I'd, I'd like to think, you know, nothing is truly global in the sense that it captures everything which has ever happened. But I, I, I do think that you know, in the language that we're using, um, 
in the political idioms that we have from ancient Greece, which we'll probably be about to deploy in the discussion, um, in, uh, in, 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 in the national and ideological history which fills the modern period, colonial, anti-colonial history, all of this I don't think really makes sense without Ukraine. And so I, I think you, know, you can't do a total global history in, in, um, in 44 minutes. Um, but you can take a war of global character, which is what we are observing, and, um, and, and carry out some reflections, which is what I promised, and now I'm done. Thank you very much.